So we've been going through Lead More Like Jesus this month. It's been great. It was great to join you from the Orleans campus last week uh, and be able to, to speak to all of our campuses. Uh, embarrass myself again in front of people, but this time a bigger audience. It was awesome. It was awesome. If you didn't listen to last week's message, if you weren't able to do so, I talked about how um, if I get too close to needles, there's a very high likelihood of me <laughs> passing out. That uh, you stick that needle in my arm and then I see stars. And then I, you know, have a little nappy time. And then, uh, you know, wake up all sweaty with a whole bunch of people all concerned about me and me going, seriously? Why? Why does this have to happen? Do you ever wonder why your body does things like that? Right? Like, you think of all the times when your body should be alert and ready to defend itself. It's when something dangerous or, or un, unknown is about to happen. And yet, no. My body decides, hey, you're about to be jabbed by something sharp. I should probably just shut down so I have no idea what's going on. <laughs> I don't get it. I don't get it. But you know what? It's good to have great doctors who take care of you, even when you're totally out of the picture. So, uh, leading into our conversation today, uh, those are not great achievements for me. Those two things, those two stories I've shared over the last two weeks, burning my eyebrows off, playing with fire in, in the sandbox, and passing out in a doctor's office, hopefully those are not the pinnacle of my success in life. So my question for you is, what is your greatest achievement? What is your greatest achievement? What in your time on earth so far would you be known for? If I asked people around you, those who, who've known you for the length of your life or whatever, and I said, what are they known for? What, what would be the defining moment of their life on earth? What would it be? What would people summarize your life or who you are or... In, it's, it can be challenging when we look at that. And obviously, we want to have like altruistic answers right away, especially because we're in, in a church right now. So we're like, I should come up with the Sunday school answer, right? Growing up, I wanted to be a baseball player. I wanted to play for the Blue Jays, right? We had, I used to go to Exhibition Stadium in Toronto down on the CNE grounds and watch the Blue Jays. I dreamed of being uh, an outfielder that was a mix of Jesse Barfield, Lloyd Mosby, and George Bell. If you don't know those names, that was one of Toronto Blue Jays' best three outfield combinations they've ever fielded. It was amazing watching them play in the outfield. And I wanted to be a mashup of all them and play for the Blue Jays. And I guess you can figure out whether or not that happened. <laughs> But we have goals, right? We have these achievements that even from a young age, we want to we wanna reach these things. And often they're tied to greatness, aren't they? They're, try, they're tied to some level of glory or success or achievement. And like I said earlier, so far I'm sharing lots of stories that are painting a very different picture. That I resemble more of a Muppet than I do a Michelangelo. But that's okay. That's okay, because I'm not really concerned about those stories painting the picture of who I am. Last week, like I said, we spoke on crisis and what it, what it looks like, what crisis reveals, when, when, what the calm, 
in our lives conceals, but this week we're talking about legacy, a legacy. How do we lead more like Jesus for a legacy? And since we live in what we call a meritocracy, where it's by your merit, what you're good at, what you succeed at, your skills, your education, your success, that's where your value is defined. That's where you rise to the top based off of those things. That's the world we live in, is that it's a meritocracy. And when we think of legacy, we often think in those terms. We think of greatness. We think of success. We think of everything like that. And it certainly can include, I know I'm scratchy here, and I don't want to scratch. There. And it certainly can include greatness, but if it's only defined by greatness, legacy then could be limited to a select few, wouldn't it? Because who can always be on the top? How can we all be on the top? I remember watching a, a movie quite a number of years ago, years ago with my kids called The Incredibles. But a whole family uh, had these superpowers. And, and at one point, one of the kids says, like, if everybody's special, then that means, like, nobody's special, right? Because everybody's all the same in, in the end, right? And it's like, how can we all be great when meritocracy is how that's decided? When your success is how your greatness or your value is decided? That's how we often think of it, right? And that would mean it's only a few people that can actually achieve that success or be remembered for what they did. Now, put up your hand if, if uh, you can remember the name of your parents. Hopefully, you, we get everybody in the house doing that one. Your grandparents, keep your hand up. Your great-grandparents. Your great-great-grandparents. Right? It's hard to remember. Within a few generations... Within a few generations, even those that are in your lineage are forgotten. I know I'm just a cup of joy this morning, aren't I? <laughs> it's true, though. Within a few generations, we start to forget the names of those that even brought us here to earth or brought us to existence. And because this is true... That's why we, people say legacy has to be tied to greatness, because greatness is remembered. We can't remember our great-grandparents' name, but we can remember the historical great figures of that time area. So we say they must be great because of what they did. But as followers of Jesus, we look not to culture to find that greatness, but to scriptures, don't we? And we see a completely different definition of of greatness when we look there. Let's look at Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 to 4. This is what it says. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put them, him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. As much as things have changed, humanity is still the same, isn't it? Like us, the disciples look at legacy, at greatness through the lens of human endeavor, accomplishment, and status. 
They were going to Jesus and saying, all right, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Is it Moses? Is it Elijah? Is it some other prophet? Is it going to be one of us disciples that are following you real close and learning from you and, and learning to do everything you do just the way you do it? Who's going to be sitting there right with you? Just like us. They're, they're basing it off of some type of meritocracy. Yet Jesus defines greatness so differently. He takes a child. Someone who is vulnerable, trusting, was totally reliant on the help, direction, and resources of their parent. And Jesus said that that is the ultimate picture of greatness. Wow. When I think about greatness and just the casual thoughts of greatness, words like vulnerable, trusting, reliance, they're not the first words that come to my mind. And probably not for you as well. Not often do you hear people describe the path to greatness as being like a child. Like a child. Immature. Inexperienced. But that's not really what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying we are to be childlike, not childish. I remember a birthday, probably somewhere around my, uh, my son Malachi's age, probably in between Malachi and Nikeo, between that 10 and 13, probably 11, 11 or 12, somewhere in there. I had a birthday, and uh, a birthday party, actually, that it, we had. And I had a whole bunch of my school friends and neighborhood friends over to our house, and we lived right on the edge of town. I was born and raised in Peterborough, and uh, right on the south end of Peterborough, right where the highway goes below the city, we had, we had about an acre property that was all lawn, and the backyard was huge, so big that we could play lots of sports in the backyard. We could have baseball and soccer because it was this big, massive uh, grass field. And uh, we had, I had all my friends over, and I, I loved sports. Remember, I wanted to be an outfielder for the Blue Jays. So playing baseball was one of, the, one of the things on the docket for that birthday party. And so my dad uh, gets us all there together, and we're going to split up the teams and start playing. And my dad split the teams up. He had no idea what he was doing. He didn't really know my friends and whether they were good at baseball or bad or anything like that. He split the teams up even numbers, but I ended up on the team where it seemed like nobody actually knew how to play baseball. I was the only one that knew how to play baseball. And so the competitive me who wants to be an all-star baseball player and do all this, I'm on this baseball team with people who are like, you know, let's go do a science project type of thing. You know, like not, you know, like anything that you could think of a stereotypical non-athlete, that was the team I was on. And here I am. Like I said, I'm like 11, 12. I should be beyond being upset by these things. And yet I threw the biggest fit. I was so upset about not being able to win a silly backyard baseball game because I wanted to be on a team that at least could be competitive. And I was so childish in that moment. But here's the thing. Isn't it often... Still, as adults, we act the same way. We don't change all that much. It may look slightly different, but you don't get on the same team at work that you wanted to, the same management team or group team or whatever work pod that you may have, and you're with a bunch of people that you, you don't necessarily, you know, maybe 
uh, love their work ethic or, you know, whatever, and you throw a little fit in the office, right? Or other adults do, right? Where you're off at the coffee maker, or maybe not during COVID, but back in the day, you know, remember when we used to get together in offices to work and things? You'd, you'd complain about, I can't believe the team I got put on at work. Oh, they're just, it's horrible. I'm going to end up doing all the work. And, you know, we, we act the same. We act the same because our view of greatness and the view of how we're going to do things, we want it, and it's all focused on us, and we're being childish, not childlike at all. For Jesus, living focused on oneself or for one's own glory or greatness, that is the ultimate form of childish ambitions. Thing is, we can grow older and simultaneously never really grow up. But see, it's in that growing up that as followers of Jesus, we can find where true greatness resides. Paul said as much in Philippians chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. He said, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. We need to mature in Christ. We need to see the value of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. It's that upward call that is of most importance to us as his followers. And it's in our maturity that we see that. It's in our maturity that we allow him to point out things in our lives that are childish, not childlike. The goal in life shouldn't be to get to the top or to get comfortable in life. The heart or goal of life as a follower of Jesus is to lift up as many other people as we possibly can. See, for Jesus, childlike is focusing our lives around using the spiritual gifts, the natural gifts, the abilities that we require, we've acquired and the skills in our lives to make that Jesus-sized difference in the lives of those around us. It's being a part of bringing as many people as possible to Jesus. It's following him to see his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. See, greatness isn't having your name remembered by everyone. It's about being known by the one name. I remember once, as a young adult, I went to, uh, I, I got tickets to go to a concert in Toronto at Massey Hall, and it was to go see uh, Harry Connick Jr., all right? Yeah, he's great. <laughs> jazzy, he's on the piano, plays so many different instruments, and, you know, he's got that old soul feel. It was great. I was, I was really pumped and excited to see uh, this concert until we got to Massey Hall, and I realized where our seats were. If you, if you, you probably, I'm not sure if anybody's ever been to Massey Hall, but it's, it's, it's a big, long hall, and at the very back, there's like a balcony that goes way up, and at the very, very back, you can almost like touch the ceiling because you're that far, that high up and that far back. And I think we were about four rows from the very back of this hall. And we were like peering down and we're like, I think that's him on stage. Because if, you know, with him on stage, so far down on the stage, we were like, 
all right, I guess we'll just listen to the music and enjoy it because uh, this is all we're going to really get out of this is, you know, hearing something because the, the bright lights on it, it just looked like a blur on stage. And at one point, though, there we are, just like, you know, enjoying the moment of being there at this concert. And we could hear, we could hear he had left the stage, the lights went out, it had been like one, you know, a little pause break, you know, costume change, whatever they do. Um, and all of a sudden we could hear a bass player playing. You know, we could hear it and we're like, oh yeah, that's a great bass line. This is, you know, because it's jazz feel, old school, you know, feel. And we're like listening and we're like, that sounds so good. And we're like, where is he? Where is he? Where is he? And then all of a sudden I kind of looked to the side. Harry Connick Jr. was right beside me, way up at the top of this balcony, playing the bass, you know, and he's playing the bass and he's standing there and we're, I'm like, what is going on? You know, you, you think, I think my mic is falling apart here. It keeps moving on me. Sorry about that. All right, hopefully it'll stay placed now. He's, he's standing there playing the bass, singing with a similar mic to this, singing and playing. And we're, we're just like, we're losing our minds. Because we were like, we went from having the worst seats in the house to having the best seats in the house. And being like, who would have thought that this would happen? But here's the thing. According to Jesus, greatness isn't about where you sit. It's about where you serve. Right? It's not about where you sit, it's about where you serve. In Mark chapter 10, James and John, who are brothers and two disciples of Jesus, they come to Jesus with this selfish, best seats in the house uh, intentions. And this is what it says. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Can you imagine that, huh? We want you to do whatever we say, Jesus. Okay, you got that? And he said to them, well, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Best seats in the house. You can do that for us, right, Jesus? Seriously, though. But that I want, or we want in that case for the two of them, but I want you to do something for me. That's so childish, isn't it? That is not childlike language. That's childish language. They are defining legacy. They are defining their greatness as they understand it in accomplishment, in status, and in saying, look, we're sitting at the right and left side of Jesus in heaven. After a conversation, Jesus clarifying what it, they were really asking. Because in order to, again, reach that level of, of sitting next to Jesus, there's a few things they might need to take into account. Like, say, how Jesus left that very seat and humiliated himself by becoming human and then dying on the cross. He's like, you're going to have to kind of follow suit. And after a conversation clarifying that, what they were asking, what it really would take for him to be able to do that, if it was his call to do anyway, Jesus goes on to show what legacy looks like from his perspective. Mark 10, 42 to 45. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered, considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones 
exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must also be your slave or slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. For Jesus, greatness isn't about where you sit. It's about who you are called to serve. And here's the thing, Cornwall, each one of us has a salvation story that we can use to serve others of where and when we met Jesus. Each one of us has gone through tests, and in Christ we have a testimony to share with others. Each one of us, if we're followers of Jesus today, has been gifted a spiritual gift for the body of Christ, which we use to build it up, to protect it, and to see it flourish. Each one of us has resources with which we give a tithe to the local church and then grow in generosity towards others. Each of us have time that we can use to share and serve with others. Each one of us is given position for a kingdom purpose. And some of us are given status for a divine assignment. Legacy on earth is living a life where no one forgets your name. But legacy to Jesus is living a life where it only matters that God knows your name. The legacy on earth is often summed up by the word fame. And those are my baseball dreams, being famous like those famous Blue Jay outfielders. But legacy to Jesus is summed up by a different word, faithful. Faithful. I want us to read the final story that we can see in Acts chapter 2. But the outpouring of the Spirit. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared on them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And we've talked about this a little bit in, in the last couple of days or, or weeks about the Spirit filling us and giving us what we need in order to be empowered for the mission that he has for us. But dropping down to verse 14, Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. The power and the demonstration of the Spirit that just happened was for a specific purpose. Because he says, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. And he then goes on to declare the gospel to them. Look how it finishes in verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Every nation, tongue, and tribe seemed to be almost represented when they spoke in those different tongues. And what it did was it announced, it announced that God's gospel, Jesus, was for all people. Did you know that today, approximately, give or take a couple kilometers, a few meters here or there, we are 8,930 kilometers from Jerusalem. 
from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the outmost ends of the world, 8,930 kilometers. That's how far the gospels traveled to get here to Cornwall. For my family, for the legacy of my family, it was a slightly shorter journey. It was 4,550 kilometers for it to go from Jerusalem up into Netherlands, just outside Rotterdam, where my great-grandparents and grandparents learned who Jesus was and began a legacy within my family of following Jesus. The gospel of Jesus was preached from Jerusalem to Judea, to the ends of the earth, all the way to you here today. I know there's people in this room that have been saved here in Cornwall because the gospel has made it this far, that their legacy of knowing Jesus started here in Cornwall. The gospel has spread. But here's the thing. Do you know their names? Do you know the names of those who have been faithful to Jesus, who have lived lives that have shared the gospel so that it traveled and traveled and traveled 8,930 kilometers in order for somebody here in Cornwall to know that Jesus knows their name, that Jesus loves them, that Jesus cares for them and has a life so much better than they could ever imagine without him. We don't know their names, but they were faithful, that they've left a legacy that they may never know because of their faithfulness to Jesus. But God knows. But God knows. There's a legacy, a great cloud of witnesses whose faithfulness has given us this great gift. A profound moment for each one of us will be when we get to see how God has used our lives unknown to us to make a Jesus-sized difference in the lives of others. Where that legacy of our faithfulness to Jesus continues on past us and gets spread to people who move to another city, who move to another place and continue spreading the love of Jesus, the gospel. The legacy continues on like that. You'll never be famous for it. You'll never have glory here on earth for it. But God will know your name. And God will know somebody else's name. And then God will know somebody else's name. And somebody else will know him because of our faithfulness. Leading for legacy isn't about fame. It's faithfulness. Leading for legacy isn't about status. It's about serving. Leading for legacy isn't, isn't about being earthly focused. It's about living with eternity stamped in our eyes. Leading for legacy isn't trying to get everyone to know your name. And they're always glad you came. <laughs> Some of you got that. But it's about introducing others to his name. Because to Jesus, embracing that vulnerability, embracing trust, embracing the reliance on the abundance of his resources. This is greatness in his kingdom. And so what does it look like for us to leave a legacy today? 
based off what I was talking about, just a couple of points for us to consider and challenge ourselves with. Can we forsake the childish focus of securing esteem for ourselves and instead keep our focus on others? Because that creates that vulnerability, doesn't it? When we want to secure our, that esteem for ourselves and security for ourselves, that's us making sure we're not vulnerable. But keeping our eyes focused on others leaves us vulnerable. Can we do that? Can we forget about the position of our seat and position ourselves to serve? Because that means we need to trust God that he'll take care of us. He'll, he'll get us the seat we need. He'll take care of us. We don't need to worry about where we're going to sit. We need to worry about where we're going to serve. And then we're going to let him give us a seat that he wants to give us. Can we fight the desire to be comfortable on earth at the cost of a crown in heaven? This comforts, the comforts of this earth, they're great. They feel nice to, to aim for comfortable things in a comfortable life, to live at least a middle-class type of lifestyle. It, it's so enticing to try and at least get to that level. But for this vapor of a life that we live, do we really want to settle for that versus what we could have, that legacy in eternity? So force yourself to look away from yourself and turn your eyes to Jesus. Fight the desire to work in your own strength and instead be led and empowered by the Spirit. Each one of those things, if we do it, what that does is puts us in that childlike place again where we're vulnerable, where we're trusting, where there's a reliance on God and in his power and his spirit. You want to leave a legacy with that childlikeness. Each day, sometimes moment by moment, we need to turn our eyes towards Jesus. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. What we're going to do right now is we're just going to let that song be a close in us so we can turn our eyes, not from the things that we want to do, build legacy on ourselves, but to turn our eyes towards Jesus. And so we'll worship together, and then Pastor Ingrid will come back to close us. Mm -hmm.